All right, so quick reminder, and on page one you have the outline of what we've gone through so far in John. Remember that the first 28 verses of the book are focusing on the creation of the temple or tabernacle of God, which is the earth itself and also bringing Christ into the world in his incarnation. And so he is both the tabernacle and he's entering the tabernacle. He, the earth is the place where God dwells with man and also Christ is the place where God dwells with man. And so he is the tabernacle and he's also coming into the tabernacle. He's coming into this place where God dwells with man. And when we come into the tabernacle, you remember that there is this bronze altar for sacrifice for sin. And that bronze altar points to this idea of the need for payment of sin. And we saw in chapter 1, verses 29 to 51, that John says, John the Baptist says, and John the Apostle, they both say, that Jesus is the Lamb of God. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That doesn't mean every individual. That means people from every nation, like we read about in Psalm 87. The idea of the nations being saved, being brought in. Now, when we get to John chapter 2 and continue in John 3, there is this theme of cleansing water. Cleansing ceremonies and the reality of cleansing. And so, there's a bronze container of water with this ability to wash for ceremonies in the tabernacle. And in John 2 and 3, remember in John 2, there's the wedding with all of those containers for water that were for cleansing, and they were turned into wine. And now, we're talking about this idea of the new birth and a being born of water and spirit. Okay, so last time, we focused on the phrase born again or born from above. This time, I want to make sure, again, I want to emphasize the meaning of being born of water and spirit. So this text, as we go through it, there are two main ways it's misunderstood. Generally, everybody gets that being born of the spirit is talking about the work of the Holy Spirit to regenerate a man. But the water, people understand it to be the water that breaks, for example, when a child is born. That is not what it is talking about. Secondly, people will think it's talking about the waters of physical baptism. That is not what it is talking about. Okay, so let's think about those two interpretations for just a minute. If the text is saying you must be born from a woman... Does that mean that every child that dies of miscarriage is not somebody who can be saved? Secondly, if it's talking about baptism, the baptismal waters, is it saying that if you're not baptized with physical water that you cannot be saved? You see how that would contradict the other places of Scripture. For example, we know that John the Baptist was regenerated in the womb before he was born. Additionally, we know that one of the sons of David, the first son by Bathsheba, died young. And so we're told that David had this assumption. When he heard that he died, he said, I cannot go to him. He, 
he cannot come to me, but I will go to him. In other words, when he dies, he would go to paradise where that child is. He's assuming that that child is in paradise. And so we have this idea of infants and those that are unborn, they're able to be saved. So, being born of water is not a literal requirement to be born of a woman, to go through the fullness. It's not just an assertion that you've got to be conceived and then also be born of the Spirit. And it's not talking about baptism, because that would make justification by faith and baptism, which the rest of the chapter very plainly teaches if you believe you're not condemned and if you don't believe you are condemned. Belief is the alone differentiator. So what is being said? The water is the effect of the Holy Spirit and the Spirit is the origin. You might translate this as born of the Spirit and of the Spirit. So, for example, in Luke and in Matthew, in Matthew 3, verse 11, we are told that John the Baptist baptizes with water, but there's one who's coming who will baptize with the Spirit and with fire. What's that fire? That fire is talking about the effect of the Holy Spirit to make a man holy unto God. It's not a literal fire. The fire there is the effect of the Holy Spirit. So when you see baptism with the Holy Spirit and fire, or baptism with the Holy Spirit and water, in both cases, what's being talked about is the symbolic usage of fire and water, not literal fire or water. And so, being born of water here is born of cleansing. You read Calvin's commentary on John here, he says the same thing. You read Rush Dooney, he'll say the same thing. You will find overwhelmingly that this is the view that you find from Reformed readers of this text. But it is very rarely known by people sitting in the pews. But this text is such a central text of Scripture. It is so widely known and quoted. It is important that you walk away and you get that. If you find this to be not credible, it's important that you come and talk to me about this. It's important that you look into this. This text is so famous that if you don't understand it, you will find that something that comes into your mind over and over again in your life as a Christian is something you don't understand. So there's the main thing I want to make sure you walk away with. Born of the Spirit means born by the power of the Holy Spirit and of water is talking about the cleansing work of the Holy Spirit where He cleanses us from sin by the inward work of sanctification by first causing us to have faith and then causing us to grow in faith all right so chapter 3 verse 1 there are a number of things that i walked through and i defined for you last time my goal is to go faster through here and to make sure that you get the conceptual thing. So last time I walked you through a bunch of wrong stuff, gave you a bunch of definitions, and this time I'm leaning on that, and I'm going to try to help to make sure that there's an easy to take away main points. First, verse 1, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God. 
For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Okay, so what is he saying? We know you're a prophet. We know you're a prophet sent by the true God. Now he says the reason is because of the signs. I spent significant time with you last time talking about how signs are not the basis of authority. This is a bad argument. And that's what Jesus addresses. So, here are the tests of a true prophet. Okay, look at point one. The tests of a true prophet. One, a true prophet will claim to be speaking by the authority of God. He will claim to be a prophet. His words will have a claim of authority. Thus saith the Lord, or the Lord called me. Or there will be an acknowledgement that this is Scripture that he's delivering. So there's a claim of authority. Two, he will not contradict old revelation. Any contradiction of old revelation in the stuff that he is saying is from the Lord means he's a false prophet. Any. Any. Thirdly, any prediction he makes, all of the predictions he makes, must come true. One false prediction means he's a false prophet. There will be zero false predictions if he's a true prophet. Now here's optional signs. The optional tests are there might be signs that draw attention to him or attention to his teaching. It might not. Now we know there are no more prophets. But of them, for example, one of them would be Mordecai. Who wrote the book of Esther? Mordecai. And Mordecai wrote the book of Esther. He's a prophet. We have no known signs, miracles from Mordecai. There's a book, and there's a holy day instituted by him called Purim. Those are necessarily claims of divine authority. So a teacher come from God, a prophet, should have those tests. So we talked about the nature of truth, and we talked about how experience is not the basis of knowledge. And I've given you a shortened outline there. I'm not going to go back through it. But that's important to remember, that if we try to claim our experiences of signs or how we know truth, that makes that the higher authority than the Word of God. The Word of God is the highest authority. Nothing is higher than truth itself. God is truth itself, and what he says is truth. There is no higher authority than the Word of God. We use the Word of God to interpret our experience. Verse 3. Jesus answered and said to Nicodemus, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Let me just remind you of the last thing that was said. Nicodemus says, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Okay? So somebody walks up to another guy and says, you're a really great teacher. There's all these really good signs that you're a good teacher. This is fantastic. I'm, I'm really happy to be meeting with you. And the response of that teacher is, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. Okay? So that thing... There's a strangeness to the way that Jesus responds. That strangeness is not Jesus ignoring the context. 
That strangeness is Jesus identifying a problem and attacking it head on. The problem he sees is you are using your physical eyes to see miracles. And here's the thing. You don't know the difference between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan unless you are born again. Okay, so you see how he's addressing the subject and he's not just like blowing past it. Now, most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is the visible church. That's how the text of Scripture typically uses that label. It's difficult here. It's weird here. Because it says, see the kingdom of God, and then a little bit later it's going to talk about entering the kingdom of God. And what it communicates is, if you're not born again, you can't enter the kingdom of God. Let's pause there for a second. That would create a problem if we're talking about the visible church, right? Because there are lots of people that come into the visible church who are hypocrites. There are lots of people who come into the visible church who are not believers. There are lots of people in the visible church who are not born again. Okay. So, maybe, maybe, he's talking about the invisible church both times. But if it's invisible, how do you see it? Do you, when you're born again, get a power all of a sudden to infallibly see all the other born-again people? You like walk up to somebody, give them the handshake, and you're like, I can sense it in this one. Elect. For the foundations of the earth. You, brother, are true. Shake the next hand. Get away from me, you scum. I can feel it. You didn't have the proper form of the handshake. No. There is nothing about being regenerate that makes it so you can infallibly see who's elect. So do you see how both of them are difficult for the text? So, that drives us to do this. Okay, The first reference is to the visible church. You can't see which churches are true churches unless you're born again. Because if you're not born again, you don't know the gospel, you don't believe the gospel, and you therefore can't differentiate between true churches and false churches. The second one is using the kingdom of God, which references the visible church, as a symbol or representation of the invisible church. So you enter the kingdom, and you're entering the visible church, and... Do you guys think that the visible church is a symbol that represents those who are truly saved? Like, is everybody in the visible church saved? No. Is everybody who's saved in the visible church? No. But the visible church is a symbol on the earth that points to those who are actually saved. Okay, so that's how this is used here. Okay, so now, having tried to give you the the basics of what's the deal here, why do we go from visible church to invisible church? I've tried to walk you through why. Now I'm just going to assume that's, that's right. Okay, I've shown you the difficulties of why. You can't just read both as visible, visible. And you can't read it as invisible, invisible. invisible. It's got to be visible, visible representing the invisible. Okay, we walked through that. 
So now I'm going to unpack all sorts of stuff. Okay. So most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. I want to help to make sure that you all have a clear view of how the work of regeneration fits in systematically with the Word of God. So let's, let's think about this. Where does regeneration come from? It comes from God. So does God act haphazardly? Does God act without purpose? Does God act without plan? No. He is not chaotic. He is not learning. He is not coming up with new stuff. He knows all truth. And nothing happens except for what He has planned. And so, we go back to this idea of all the people who are born again are people who were chosen by God. They are the elect. They were unconditionally elected. It is not the fact that God looked forward in time and said, ah, here's the ones who will believe Me. They're the ones I'm going to choose. No. None of them would believe unless He had given them belief. Faith is a gift. And so that gift is something that man has no power to make. He has no power to give it to himself. So this is a choosing not by, based upon the meeting of a condition by the man. This is a choosing that is based upon God's purpose, His goal and reprobation is a choosing of those men who are going to not believe, who are going to be justly condemned for their sin. So I have here a the foot the the, the note there goes a little bit longer into that. So I'd encourage you, if you're trying to have clarity about what election and reprobation are, that's written out there for you on the handout. So being born again, being born from above, is something that's rooted in the idea that even though a person is born physically and has physical life, we need to realize that man is naturally spiritually dead. And so there needs to be a second birth for spiritual life. And that second birth for spiritual life is a work that comes from God. So being born again or born from above, this is the replacing of spiritual death with spiritual life. So, we have the doctrine of original sin. And in particular, this idea that we have a corrupt nature coming from Adam. Okay, Original sin has three doctrines in it. I have it written out there in a parenthesis for you. Here are the three doctrines of original sin. We are guilty in Adam. He sinned, and that sin is counted to us. We're guilty for it. Two, we receive a corrupt nature, which is from the beginning of our existence, we are unbelieving. And because we are unbelieving, our goals are unholy and our choices are unrighteous. We are unbelieving from our first moment of conception. Thirdly, all particular sins, our unrighteous choices and our unholy purposes, flow from that unbelief. Okay, so that's the doctrine of original sin. Now, some people historically have tried to 
dampen that down because you might imagine it's not a particularly popular doctrine amongst the race of men. People don't like to think about how bad they are. They would prefer to think, I'm awesome. Which is why it's very easy to sell books telling people, you're awesome. You got this. Right? So that is an easy selling point. You don't have this. You are doomed apart from salvation. You are corrupt in all your parts. You transgress the law of God continuously. And there is no bastion of goodness within you. It is not a particularly popular doctrine to man's nature. But it is a particularly true doctrine. And so total depravity is the effort to make this very clear. I want you to look at the parenthetical following total depravity. Here's the doctrine of total depravity. You are corrupt in all your parts. You have no bastion of goodness in you. Only evil proceeds from our fallen nature, your fallen nature, my fallen nature. Every second, every nanosecond, you are transgressing the law of God. You're breaking God's law all the time. Yes, now. Right now, too. Also now. Five minutes ago, yes. Then also. An hour ago, yes. Five minutes from now, you will be transgressing God's law. All of the times are times that you are transgressing God's law. No good is able to be performed by you until you are regenerated. Okay, this is total depravity. The removal of unbelief is the removal of spiritual deadness. That's done by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, we're going to talk about that a little bit more, but what I want to point out as we think about this new birth and the powerful work of the Spirit by His grace to give birth to us anew, I want you to think about the, the categories of Redemption that's accomplished by Christ in his mediatorial work, concluding with his death. And I want you to think about the application of it to us. Okay, how does the Holy Spirit cause that redemption to be our redemption? Something we possess. So the accomplishment is through what is called the doctrine of the atonement or the limited atonement. Christ pays for all of the sins of all of the elect and none of the sins of anybody else. He pays for all of the sins of all of the elect and none of the sins of anybody else. There is a tight logic to this. God chose who he was going to save it is not possible for the God who knows all things to send Christ failing to know who he was actually going to save. It's not possible for him to not know it. He knows everything by definition as God. So when he sends Christ, he knows who is actually going to be saved. He knows who he's sending him for. And furthermore, God is just. And we have to ask ourselves, when Christ pays for sin, what does that do? Does it actually pay our debts so that we don't owe it anymore? Or does it not pay for our debts? So that in fact, we still owe the debt. Which one is it? Does he pay the debt or does he not? If he pays the debt and it's for everybody, 
guess who's going to hell? Nobody. Convenient. People can get on board with that. You could build some pretty big churches with that. Like lots of crowds, relatively happy with that. The problem is, the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says, there are people going to hell. So, here's the choice. Popular doctrine that you can build a pretty big religious institution with, or what does the Bible say? So if we want to hold on to the Bible, and we want to deal with the fact that the Bible plainly teaches that some people are going to hell, we can't have the doctrine that Jesus paid for everybody's sins. Next option. Jesus paid for some of the sins of everybody. Great, we're all going to hell. What are we doing here? Option three. Jesus paid for some of the sins of some people. Okay, great. Some people are going to hell, and other people are going to hell. Nobody's saved. Not accomplishing anything here. Option four. Jesus didn't pay for any sins of anybody. Okay, we're all going to hell. Option five. Jesus paid for all the sins of all the elect, and none of the sins of anybody else. He saves the elect. Some people are going to hell. Fits with the Bible. Some people get saved. Fits with the Bible. That is the only systematically available option. Everything else is a contradiction with the rest of the Word of God and results in no salvation for anybody. So limited atonement. Now, how does God make sure that all the people He's elected and all the people who Christ paid for end up actually getting saving faith? Because we're told in the Bible that salvation is by faith alone, right? So God chooses, God powerfully gives faith. And this is the work of irresistible grace. In the Westminster Confession, you'll see the heading, Effectual Calling. Last time we walked through the Shorter Catechism about effectual calling, you have the term regeneration. Okay, It's important that you relate these three terms. Irresistible grace, effectual calling, regeneration. Here's the relationship, okay? Irresistible grace is God's attitude of favor. Grace is demerited favor. If God has favor towards a person, that means he wants what's good for them. He likes them. He wants their well-being. He's seeking what's good for them. That's what favor is. If he wants something, he does it. God has no frustrations. God is a zero-frustration God. He gets everything he wants, Nobody can hold back his hand, and nobody can say to him, what are you doing? He just takes the cookie out of the jar, and everybody smiles. He does whatever he wants, whenever he wants. That's it. Now, God's irresistible grace makes it so that at a particular time, he causes his word to be effectual in bringing about belief. That's effectual calling. Right now, I am speaking the word to you, and this is the outward call. And it can be effectual, and you can be converted or regenerated, or you can be further sanctified, or it can be ineffectual, and you can reject it or not listen. Irresistible grace makes it so that God causes an effectual calling. It's not just the outward call. It's an inward work of the Holy Spirit to cause a person to understand and believe. And that work of effectual calling 
is regeneration. That is birthing a person again. Perseverance of the saints is a part of the application of this atonement. If Jesus paid for your sins, you're going to get converted and you're going to be upheld. You're going to be preserved. You will continue to believe. You will persevere in the faith because you're going to be upheld by the work of sanctification. You're going to be preserved. Faith is everlasting life. It is not temporary life. Christ came not only to give life, but to give it abundantly. So he's going to uphold you in the faith, and he's going to sanctify you by growing your faith. He's the author of your faith, and he's the finisher of your faith. Okay. So I've got more there for defining things. Feel free to read those notes, but I want to go on to verse 4 here. So what we've, what we've seen is, we've seen Tulip, or little tip. We've seen tulip, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints. These doctrines are necessary doctrines. They are central doctrines. They are things that are for us to understand the gospel properly. And the new birth is the central part in terms of when the application comes to you as an individual. And Jesus is making this sort of a big deal in his conversation with Nicodemus. Nicodemus is showing big misunderstanding. Verse 4. How can a man be born when he's old, Jesus? How can he enter? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? So, this questioning, the physicality, the literalness, the grossness of what he's talking about. Is he showing total misunderstanding? Or is he showing, I don't know what you mean, obviously you don't mean a physical birth. What are you talking about? So Jesus answers, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So we go from seeing the kingdom to entering the kingdom. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Okay, so the question, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? This kind of literalism, we can laugh at it about this, because we all get the new birth. But we do this a lot when we read the Bible. We do this a lot when we read the Bible. And we need to avoid this error. Here's the error. The error is the error of literalism where we fail to understand figures of speech and representations that are made clear by the context. 
When you read the Bible, you are always looking for a literal meaning. And the literal meaning of a figure of speech is not what the words woodenly say. Okay, so if the Bible says God's going to lift up the horn of the righteous, does that mean he's literally going to lift up, do you have like a horn on your head that's going to be lifted? Do you have a horn that you blow on that's going to be lifted? Or is that a symbol for something? I like horns. I like both kinds of horns. But I think we all get that the point here is that it's a symbol of power. The lifting of the horn is the raising of power. Okay? A trumpet or a horn on an animal. Both are used for the idea of power. The animal with thrusting power to harm, the blowing of a trumpet to assemble men. In particular, the silver trumpets that are used in the book of Numbers are about assembling for war or assembling for worship or assembling for government. All of those are manifestations of power. So we have to read looking for representations that fit with the context. If we just make up representations, we're being allegorical, we're ignoring the text, we're ignoring the broader context, we have to look for the representations that are explained in the Bible itself, and then the Bible can speak far more quickly using symbols. So the book of Psalms is actually a training ground for this. The book of Psalms is a bunch of condensed places of symbolism over and over and over and over again. And it is the training ground for being able to understand all the symbols. Because it takes the symbols, and as you're singing them, if you're going to sing them with understanding, it requires explanation or getting the meaning. So you go, okay, fine, we're in the New Covenant Church, and we're singing about sacrificing bulls, everybody. You can relate to that, right? Like, that's relatable. Everybody, everyday life, you're just like, all that bull sacrificing that I do and I see all the time, I totally get it. I feel you. No, you don't. Right? So what do you do? You have to go back and you have to deal with elaborate detail in the book of Leviticus to understand, oh, the bull sacrifices are the expensive sacrifices for the rich and the powerful people. And these are going to be used in one of these various types of sacrifices. And they mean this. And it relates to the priestly office because bulls relate to the priestly office based upon their usage. And you go through all that and you go, okay, great, I get it. You sing about sacrificing bulls and you go, this also points to Christ. The Psalter is a training ground of typologies. The Psalter teaches you how to read figurative language, which is why we're required to sing it and we're required to sing it with understanding and grace in the heart. So you study the Psalms and as you're singing them, it forces you to figure it out. All the stuff that doesn't fit for you today in the New Covenant era, you need to go, before you sing it, figure it out. That's what it does. It pushes you to figure it out. So it helps us to avoid literalism. And oftentimes, what we see in the Bible is, there are a huge number of physical symbols. And these physical symbols represent spiritual realities. There's a huge number of physical symbols and these physical symbols represent spiritual realities. And so we need to understand the relationship of the physical and the spiritual. And the sacraments are the center point in the Bible in terms of physical representations that we deal with all the time. We, we see the Lord's Supper and we see baptism. These are physical symbols that represent spiritual realities. So you need to understand those. I would strongly encourage you to go read the Westminster Confession on sacraments 
on baptism and on the Lord's Supper. And you will find an excellent list of the meaning, and you'll find fantastically, conveniently located footnotes with verses that prove it. That will be helpful to you. And they are the things that give us the most common things that we deal with in terms of signs and reality, the physical and the spiritual. Those things are there. And it helps you to avoid being Nicodemus. How can a guy be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? So Jesus answers, and what he does is he helps to give more symbols. So you read Jesus, right? And this this initial question is, okay, how can a guy be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb? And you read Jesus' answer, and you might be tempted to think this doesn't feel very helpful. If I were Jesus, I would have answered differently. Because I'm better. I'm a better pastor, better at helping people. I know how to be more pastoral. So this temptation, let's, what is Jesus doing? Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. This kind of just feels like doubling down, right? The guy's like, what do you mean, Jesus? And he's like, I'm serious. And I think that's what he's doing. I think what he's doing is saying, you need to listen harder, Nicodemus. Why is he treating Nicodemus this way? Because Nicodemus is a church officer in the highest church court. So he's a little rough with him. So I want you to all feel, if you ever have something you think I'm not getting, I'm being a little bit slow, you should be very direct with me. I have a greater responsibility. You should be very direct with me. And... You can maintain respect, but you should be clear, be direct, push to the point. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Okay, so this is super important. You need to get it. Verse 6. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Okay, so he's talking about a fleshly reality and a spiritual reality. And so, here's birth that's flesh birth and here's birth that's spiritual birth okay so get this Nicodemus there's two differences there's the physical and the spiritual and then he says do not marvel that I said to you you must be born again in other words don't think that I'm talking about a physical birth Nicodemus don't marvel at it in the way that you just did instead let me give you another physical analogy using a single word that's a pun that both has a physical meaning and a spiritual meaning. The word spirit, which also means wind. So what does he say? He says, the wind, or spirit, blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, or voice of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the spirit. So he's taking wind, physical wind, and relating it to spirit. And so he's saying, I'm talking about a spiritual birth, Nicodemus, and here's another example of a figure of speech where the physical is used to represent the spiritual. So, looking at this now, I mean, it's a pretty awesome answer. Jesus is getting a lot in a small amount of words. And he's also making it very clear we're very 
slow. We are very slow. That's why God is very kind to give it to us in writing. So we can read it over and over again. And we are called to take in the word of God every day as our bread, every day as our nourishment. And the word of God helps us because we are slow. We are slow. And I can think of so many doctrines that took me forever to get. You are aware of some of them. We've had to go through a process of reformation here. But we are all very slow. And so Jesus was dealing with slow person, slow person, slow person, slower people, people that totally resisted him, people that hated him, slow people, slow people, slow people. I think the principal pain that Jesus went through in life was the sluggishness and the resistance of the visible church. So, like, for example, when he goes to see Lazarus dead, he weeps. Everybody's like, Jesus is weeping. I weep. He gets me. No. What he's frustrated about is our slowness to believe. That is what he is weeping about. That's what he's weeping about. The slowness of his own people to believe. And it is that pain of dealing with the evil that dwells in the visible church. The slowness to believe. So this is a manifestation of it. This is Jesus dealing with a guy who's a believer. Nicodemus is a believer. He's a church officer. And Jesus is doing this because he's going, you need to get this, Nicodemus. You're a teacher of the church. You need to get this. How do you not get this? You need to get this. Jesus' answer talks about being born of water. Remember, water here is a symbol for the effect of what the Holy Spirit does. It's about cleansing. How do I know this? Do a word search of water and look for all the places where there's washings in the Bible. And tell me what water means. Tell me about how it's used in reference to the new birth. Look for that. Water is used to represent cleansing physically, and the physical cleansings are always pointing to a spiritual cleansing, a washing. Being born of the Spirit is talking about the origin. So the water is talking about the effect, and the Spirit is talking about the origin. Born of the Spirit, this is talking about the origin of the new birth from the Spirit. Both the origin and the effect are necessary to see the kingdom of God. You're not going to see the visible church unless the Holy Spirit gives you the new birth and cleanses you to see the difference. Both the origin and the effect are necessary to enter the kingdom of God. So entering the visible church is a representation here for the invisible church. And you're not going to be able to enter into the reality of the kingdom unless you have been born again. Born from the Spirit with the effect, the water. Now, this continues, and Jesus talks about being born of the flesh versus being born of the spirit. What's of the flesh is flesh, and what's of the spirit is spirit. 
he is talking, when he talks about the flesh here, he's talking about the natural birth of a natural man through the natural process of procreation. And this is by the providence of God to govern the nature of things, natural things. Now, the origin of the fleshly soul, the fleshly mind, is another fleshly mind. Okay, now in reform circles, there's two popular teachings about where the human soul comes from. Okay? The most popular view is called creationism. And you go, I'm a creationist, let's be friends. Okay, yeah, no, I, I believe in six-day literal creation too. And I hope you do, because if you don't, you're a heretic. Six-day literal creation. But what we're talking about right now is where does the human soul come from? And the human soul comes from not being created by itself anew. How do I know that? One, God finished the work of creation on day six. He doesn't make stuff from nothing anymore. He rested from that. Two, God does not create things evil. God does not create things evil. He makes them good, and he providentially controls things and brings evil to happen, but he doesn't make things that are evil at the point of his making them. Okay? So, the doctrine of creationism that says when a new person is conceived, God immediately creates their soul in a fallen condition, that doctrine is unscriptural because God has stopped creating and God does not create things that are evil. Furthermore, this text teaches us that what is of the flesh comes from the flesh. So fleshly human nature comes from fleshly human nature. Are we talking about the physical? What is the flesh a symbol of? Flesh is a symbol of natural man, the fallen condition. What he's saying is fallen man comes from fallen man. And you know what does not come from fallen man? Spiritual life. You know where spiritual life comes from? It comes from the Holy Spirit. That's the contrast. What is of the flesh is flesh, and what is of the spirit is spirit. So this is teaching the doctrine of traditionism. It's a fun name. Sounds kind of like rad trad. But it's traditionism. Traditionism. Traditionism is the doctrine that the human soul comes through the process of procreation from one human and another human to the new human. So that means the soul of a new human being comes through a procreative act, the use of the means of human souls for the formation of new souls. This fits with the doctrine of original sin where the corruption of nature passes from parent to child. That evil is through the mediated existence of the parent going to the child. Furthermore, this fits with the doctrine that is plainly taught elsewhere in Scripture. For example, in the book of Hebrews, it says that in Abraham's loins, Levi existed. That's a few generations down the line. 
So when Abraham tithed to Melchizedek, Levi tithed to Melchizedek. This is a existence in your parents that is not like you're a pre-existent mind sitting around thinking about stuff, but the idea is that your origin comes through your ancestors. And so there is this inheritance of personality tendencies and cultural tendencies that exists. This is part of why, for example, you can see people who have not been significantly influenced by bi biological parents having traits that are similar to biological parents, not just physical traits, but attitudinal and behavioral traits. So this is traditionism. Traditionism as opposed to creationism. The soul is not immediately created by God, but rather it is procreatively made under God's providence through the use of the spirit of the parents. Just as the body is made from the bodies of the parents, the spirit is made from the spirits of the parents. Now, being born of the spirit this is the new birth, it's spiritual life, and it comes from the spirit as a supernatural work to overcome fallen nature. Procreation is a natural work that fits with the way God designed things. It's sovereignly controlled by God, but it's natural. The new birth is supernatural. The new birth is supernatural. It is above and against and beyond the power of the nature of things. It is above it. it does, our nature doesn't have the power to do this. It is against it. We resist. But he is irresistible. And so he gets it done. Above, against, is beyond. We don't have that power. Now, being born of the Spirit is a supernatural work. And this discussion of where faith comes from, the gift of faith, is something that is constantly being attacked by heretics throughout history. So what I've given for you here is a list of the various ways that this has been significantly debated that I was able to come up with from memory in five minutes. Okay? There's more. After I finished typing and I was out of time, I was like, oh, I wish I'd put this in there. I wish I'd put that in there. This gets talked about all the time in the history of the church. Why? Because heretics hate it and they attack it in all sorts of new ways. So here's the old one. Pelagianism versus Augustinianism. You know what Pelagius taught? Human beings are naturally good and they're able to merit righteousness. They're able to merit God's favor. But sometimes they might fail. And when they do fail, it's really useful that Jesus came because he provided some sort of a benefit for them that he did not define clearly for them to be able to receive mercy. Augustine taught the Reformed religion. Justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, and the mediatorial work of Christ alone. Christ paid for the sins of his people. He effectually causes people to believe the gospel. You cannot stop it. Augustine won. Clement of Rome wrote about it. Vigilantius wrote about it. The Celtic Church wrote about it. Some of the Donatists were on that side. Athanasius plainly takes this position. Ambrose taught this position. These are the dominant position. You find this. But what happens is heresies die hard. 
and they like to find new ways to morph. So you have what's called the semi-Pelagian position, which tried to make it so that, okay, fine, people aren't super good, and they're not able to do all the good things, but they have a bastion of goodness, and they can choose of their own power. Or maybe the Holy Spirit helped all of us to become sort of kind of good with a bastion of goodness, so everybody now can pick God. Something to make it so there's this universal ability to pick God. So the Council of Orange happens in the 500s, and condemns that and asserts Augustinianism. This continues to be a problem, and you have a people who are called the Valois from the 600s to the 1200s. They are in southern France, northern Spain, northern Italy. You have the Celtic church that exists throughout this time as well. You have people in North Africa that are teaching this as well. You have the church all throughout Europe and the Mediterranean teaching the Augustinian position, but you also have heretics all over the place. And Rome sides against this Augustinian position of sovereign grace. And so what you have in the 1200s, and I was talking to somebody, maybe you, where I said it was the uh, Benedictine order that was created in order to persecute the Valois, and that was wrong, it's the Dominicans, so sorry about that mistake. So the Dominican order was created in the 1200s, and it explicitly was sent out with a mission of persecuting these people that were in southern France, northern Italy, and northern Spain who were teaching what we would consider Protestantism. And that persecution lasts for over 600 years, and guess what? They never get stamped out. You know what happened when the Reformation happened? They joined the Reformation. They had confessions of faith. They became known by different names, the Albigenses, the Valois. They were sometimes called Cathars. They were sometimes called Waldenses. But they continued to exist. They weren't the only people, but they were significant people, and they were a thorn in the side of the Pope because they were right there in Piedmont or in Provence or right by the Pyrenees. So close, so close to Rome. They couldn't stamp them out. So that continued witness you have in England the Lollards and Wycliffe, and that's remnants of the Celtic church. And, and so there's this preaching of the Bible and of the gospel of sovereign grace, and it doesn't get stamped out. And when the Reformation happens, Scotland and England powerfully rise to Protestantism quickly because of that heritage that was hidden. In the Holy Roman Empire, there were conciliarists that were trying to resist the Pope, and they killed John Huss. And the Bohemians fought the Hussite Wars, and they retained a Protestant faith without being conquered, and they joined the Reformation. Protestantism was not invented. Calvinism was not invented in the 1500s. It is the biblical faith. It is the Augustinian faith. It is the Council of Orange faith. It is the Vaudois faith. It is the faith of the Celtic Church. It is the faith of the people of God through all ages. Rome does not own history. Rome wants you to not know history. History is an embarrassment to Rome. Clement I was supposed to be a pope. If you read his first epistle, you will find it seems very Calvinistic, very Protestant. Peter was supposed to be the first pope. He was married, and his letters are very Calvinistic very Protestant. 
Erasmus argued with Luther, the bondage of the will is a classic capturing of this argument about the sovereign grace of God. Calvin wrote letters to a guy named Piggius, fantastic name, Piggius. He wrote letters to Piggius, and these letters to Piggius are captured. Uh, Benjamin Warfield has a great book called Calvin's Calvinism. Lots of people want to claim that Calvin was not really a Calvinist. So Benjamin Warfield was like, okay, we can play this game. Let's play this game. Here are letters and books written by John Calvin about predestination. And so he slapped it together into one volume, and it's called Calvin's Calvinism. And you have never read anything that is so fire-breathing Calvinist in your life. Get it? You will have a great time. It'll be a grand old time. Calvin's Calvinism. by Benjamin Warfield taking and translating Calvin's work on predestination. In the 1600s, you have the guys that are called the Arminians, or the Remonstrants, and they bring up five points to complain against the Reformed faith. And those five points are the opposition to Tulip. And Tulip is a response to those five points. This is an age-old spiritual war of people pretending to be orthodox and finding new ways to dress up heterodoxy, to try to poison the church. This is important. And that Jesus' response to a teacher who does not know these things is, are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? This is the point of assault. Satan attacks this over and over again. The solas and tulip are safeguards for us of the gospel. We have to stand firm on this doctrine. Nicodemus answered and said to him, how can these things be? He still doesn't get it after the explanation. Are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? Verse 11, most assuredly I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify what we have seen and you do not receive our witness. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? I mentioned this last time, but let me emphasize it for you. The current order of the world is earthly. The doctrine of original sin is earthly knowledge. It's obvious. There is nothing with so much evidence that your eyes have taken in as than the doctrine of original sin and total depravity. All of history is the story of total depravity on display. The history and stories of empires and emperors is the story of wickedness, one rampant. Earthly things include original sin, total depravity, and the need that we have for salvation that comes from outside of us. There is not something in us that is sufficient to save us. The heavenly things, the things about the new heavens and the new earth, the things about the rule that exists of the God of heaven who is invading the world to liberate it. These are the benefits of regeneration and the heavenly condition. The rule of Christ from heaven and the earth in the Old Covenant national community, the, the church of the Old Covenant, Israel. Also, the rule of heaven in the New Covenant international community, the Catholic Church, the Universal Church, the Worldwide Church, the church that includes all nations, all of them coming in. 
These heavenly things are the covenant of grace, the mediator who is the God-man, the work that he accomplishes, and all the benefits he attains for us. These are the heavenly things. If you don't understand the earthly things, you will not get the heavenly things. You won't understand the heavenly things. The heavenly things are the solution to the problem. Unless you get the problem, you're not going to understand the solution. So what Jesus is doing here is he's teaching us that we need to deal with more basic issues to get to less basic issues. We deal with more familiar things to help people to understand the less familiar. We deal with the easier to see to help people to understand the harder to see. You teach people arithmetic before you teach them algebra, before you teach them calculus. You teach people the earthly before the heavenly. How does that happen? The Puritan way of doing that was we should talk about the law a lot more than we should talk about the gospel. Why? Because the law is what helps people to see their need for the gospel. And you know what? If you want to disciple people as you go through life, you know what doesn't have any applications? The gospel, because it's news and not commandments. You know what has lots of applications? Law, because all it is is application. So when you talk about the law, you're going to show people their need of a savior. You're going to show people that there is evil to be restrained. And you're going to show people the glorious way of heaven reigning on earth. And those benefits, the need for salvation, the need to restrain and resist evil, and the need to see heaven reigning in the earth, those benefits, they will only get them through the gospel. Salvation is through the gospel. It's not through the law. It's through the gospel. But the law prepares, not by making them morally better, but by making them see how they're not morally better. So through your working day, you can talk about the law of God. Yeah, we should do this. We shouldn't do that. The Bible says, God says. Throughout your time with your children and your wife, throughout your time with friends, people you're trying to evangelize to, do not shy away from the law. Do not be ashamed of the law. The law of God helps to make known these earthly things that they might understand the heavenly things. No one has ascended to heaven but he who came down from heaven. That is, the Son of Man who is in heaven. Wasn't Jesus in the territory of Israel talking to Nicodemus, what does he mean he's in heaven? He's the God-man. His divinity reigned even then. And Christ is going to ascend and be at the right hand of the Father in his human nature. It is so certain to happen. It has been prophesied that he can speak about it as though it is already true. It has already happened. So he's talking about the way in which his divinity is there. He is going to do that in his humanity. But this idea, Christ has not yet ascended to heaven, but he has come down from heaven, and he's going to ascend to heaven. And so he's the only person, he's the only man who's able to testify of what he's seen that's heavenly. And this descending language, we need to make sure we understand this descending language sometimes gets twisted to talk about the doctrine that Christ descended into hell after he died. 
And remember, he did not. Christ did not descend into hell after he died. He suffered the curse and wrath of God on the cross. After that, he went to paradise with the thief that was beside him. He descended into Hades, into paradise. And Hades has two compartments, the compartment of torment and the compartment of paradise, Abraham's bosom. He did not take Old Testament saints out of hell. They were already in Abraham's bosom. They were already in paradise. Those are heresies. Those are Romanist doctrine. Extirpate them from your soul. Comments, questions, objections from the voting members and those with speaking rights.